The title of this talk is La Femme Migraineur, as the poster out there. The, the angle is for us to explore the role of estrogen in migraine. We all know that it has a role. Any, anybody who's had migraine, anybody who has treated migraine has surely heard this from their patients or experienced it personally. Uh, estrogen uh, impacts our migraines and I think my goal today is to help us explore that over the life cycle of a woman. So I have about 40 slides and then hopefully we'll have some time for questions afterwards, okay? Let's do this. All right, my, uh, I'm a clinical, uh, actually I have recently been promoted, so now I am associate professor of anesthesia and pain management and neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford. Um, I have done some independent contracting for Lilly, um, and I've participated in some clinical trials uh, for some of these companies, none of which we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going, I think we sort of explained the learning objectives today. Um, I threw this little quote in just for a little morning laugh. This is what happens when journal editors don't edit the journals they uh, publish. I um, thought that was, that was kind of funny. All right. so. Hormones, um, hormonal headaches are experienced by 50 to 60% of, of migraineurs. And it's, it's on the all-star list, the top 10 list of triggers that, that contribute to migraines. Hormones come in at about uh, number five. Um, the summary slide, so this is the very end, I'm gonna give it to you at the very beginning and then we're gonna go back, is that estrogen can modulate the mi migraine over the female life cycle. It can modulate migraine um, in an entity known as menstrually related migraine, but there's also estrogen withdrawal or exogenous estrogen-induced headache. Migraine impacts pregnancy and estrogen impacts pregnancy. Um, it can also impact breastfeeding and it can also impact menopause. So we're gonna explore today the ways that estrogen can modulate our peripheral and central nervous systems and impact our perception and ability to modulate pain and talk a little bit about treatment. But treatment starts with proper diagnosis. So that's why I want to review sort of the, the types of migraine that we know are, are related to estrogen. Um, so exploring the life cycle of, of the woman, we see that in prior to puberty, Boys and girls have equal rates of migraine, and it's about three to 10%. There's no difference. Um, but then migraine peaks uh, in, in women. So after puberty, or at puberty, migraine becomes two to three more times more common in women than in men. And migraine peaks at age 35 to 45, with uh, women overall prevalence is about 25 to 30% of females and about 8% of males. Uh, having migraine. Then we see this decline, uh, mostly in females, but also you see a decline a little bit in males, uh, around the time age 55, 50 to 60, when women are going through menopause. So we see this sort of natural correlation with estrogen, and that is um, what got people thinking along with patient experience that estrogen may likely have something to do with this process. Uh, I think we just discussed that. Um, so there, there is, m many women will say that they get 
a headache around the time of their period. And we call that menstrual migraine. We're going to refine that definition a little bit. There are women who get migraine other times of the month, and but specifically when it is related to your, your cycle, either during ovulation or during menstruation, we call it menstrual migraine. Um, so menstrual migraine most frequently occurs in the second decade of life, around the onset of menarche. It is typically without aura. It is common in about 60% of women, 50-60% of women who have migraine at baseline, um, they will have migraines perimenstrually. Um, there is a much smaller percentage, only 7%, 35, 7 to 35, that's a wide area, uh, wide berth, I realize. But those 7 to 35% of women experience pure menstrual migraine. That's what I mean by PMM, sorry about that, um, which is only during their period. So they have no other migraines at any other times in the month. But most women have some sort of combination. So the ICHD3, if you guys haven't heard of this, this is how we, the headache world diagnoses types of migraine. International Classification of Headache Disorders. We're on the third version. It's freely available online. And you can review the diagnostic criteria for any type of headache and facial pain disorder that you're interested in. It's a great resource for clinicians. And it defines menstrually related migraine. It's a little confusing here, but I want you to think about it as a headache that occurs on day one, plus or minus two, so either two days before or two days after, it gives you a little bit of a birth, uh, of your menstruation in at least two of your three menstrual cycles, um, and additionally at other times of the year, versus pure or other times of the cycle, versus pure menstrual migraine, which is exclusively occurring around the beginning of your menstrual cycle, and only occurring around the beginning of your menstrual cycle. So it's important to understand that there is most women will tell you that their headache starts around either a few days before or a few days after their period starts. If they're telling you it's the headache starting at the end of their period, that's a little bit different, and we'll get to that in a minute. Why? So just to graph this with estrogen um, so that it kind of clarifies this point, um, we see two drops in estrogen during a, women, a woman's cycle. The estrogen declines at the end of the luteal phase, and that's menses, and then estrogen steeply declines at the end of the follicular phase, and that's ovulation. And if you look at the black bar with the squares, so that's migraine without aura, the most common type, you see that we have a sharp peak in headaches at that first, at menses, that first decline, and also a little bit of a peak in headaches at ovulation, at that second decline. There's been some actually interesting research since, since this. This is from Vince Martin in 2008. It was actually, um, uh, this, this hypothesis was developed by Somerville in, way back in 1972, um, and he was the first person that actually did the, did the graphing of women's menstrual cycles related to their serum estrogen levels. Um, but since then, more recently, we've seen that female migraineurs seem to have just a steeper decline in their estrogen than non-migraineurs. 
So those, those declines that we were talking about uh, here in the late luteal phase and in the late follicular phase seem to be steeper and more rapid in migraine patients. And so that's an interesting area of research. Um, uh, pet, um, I forget her first name, but her last name is Petrovic, and she's, she's published that paper last year. Thank you. Um, okay, so how do we diagnose estrogen-related migraines? We just give them a calendar. It is very easy. All they have to do is keep track of both their period and their migraine days for several months and color it in. Um, I try to keep it simple. Sometimes my patients will give me very elaborate journals and spreadsheets and graphic novels, but just you know, a plain, simple calendar, I think, is the easiest way for you to access the information really quickly. So if estrogen is the problem, if it's this decline in estrogen, then why don't we just give everybody estrogen? Let's just throw all our patients on estrogen, right? Well, um, we have tried that, and it seems like there are some other types of headaches. There, there are some problems with giving everybody estrogen. Um, to name them, there are several types of headaches that can develop from exogenous estrogen. So first and foremost, there is a headache attributed to long-term use of a non-headache medication. And um, this used to be called headache attributed to exogenous hormones because it was, it was pretty much, that was the most common class of medications that was causing this type of headache. Now we see it, um, there's some thought that maybe it exists in some other types of medications that long-term use of these non-headache medications can lead to a, um, a headache. But this is a very well-known phenomenon, uh, and many of your patients will tell you that as well. So, and the other headache is a headache that happens with when you withdraw the estrogen. So let's say a patient um, has their third week and they're on their placebo pill. Well, sometimes that headache can be horrific for the patient. So that withdrawal of estrogen can be worse than the menstrually related migraine that you started them on estrogen for in the first place. Um, you may say, well, why don't we just do continuous, combine continuous uh, estrogen, and we can talk about that. But it does become a problem in patients because sometimes their pharmacy will run out or their insurance will switch and they'll go from generic brand name to generic or a different brand and that can th really throw them, the slight disruptions in hormones can really throw your patients into disarray. So it's not quite as easy as it sounds. Um, this has been a big debate in the OB community and the, sorry, the gynecologic community and the headache community. And um, there's been a lack of guidance. Um, this is the first consensus article that came out. Um, this came out in, in, from, in Europe uh, in 2018, and it would be lovely if we'd have a, a nice consensus article in the United States. Um, but basically, they review all the evidence, and there's not much looking at the effects of exogenous estrogen and progesterones on the course of migraine. Um, and they actually break it down into different types of migraine, and I think it might be helpful for us to just look at a few different subtypes just for our um, treatment algorithms. So in menstrually-related migraine, they recommend, first of all, they say that the evidence is low 
or weak at best. Not a lot of good evidence. But they say that if you want to try it, they would recommend extended, and by extended that means continuous, so there's no placebo week, continuous hormonal contraception for women who already require it. So if, you're, if your patient's already on it for, birth, for contraceptive reasons or for medical reasons, well, okay, maybe you can try it for headache also, or who are thinking about starting it for contraception or medical reasons. Um, for women who would prefer um, combined hormonal contraception to other preventive options or they failed other preventive options. Um, but there is no, there's no evidence to suggest that, oh, sorry, um, sorry, that sentence is. And then the, the oral pills, the extended pills, and the vaginal ring are also options. So you can either do the placebo week, although I usually don't recommend the placebo week, I, I use extended combined hormonal contraception or the vaginal ring. Um, for pure supplementation during the week of menses, transdermal supplementation with estradiol gel over estradiol patch is recommended. Um, again, all of this evidence is low or weak. It's based on a few studies, not the highest quality studies, and so we really don't have a lot of good data to make recommendations on. Um, for women who are debating if they should use estrogen for migraine not related to menses, we say that the vaginal ring or extended regimen of pills or patches has low to weak evidence, and you could consider it in women who maybe require treatment for contraception or medical reasons already. Now, the big issue when it comes into play, and the, this is the reason why you really need to, to think about this, is that in migraine with aura, this is, this is controversial. So migraine with aura has an increased risk of stroke as compared to migraine without aura. Um, however, this risk was demonstrated in, women, in older studies with women receiving significantly higher doses of estrogen than we dose today. So today we give 10, 20 micrograms, then they were giving 50. You know, it's, it's a big difference. And so um, there's a, it would be nice to revisit all these meta-analyses leaving off the studies that, that um, use, have enrolled women with higher doses of estrogen. Um, but as of now, there is a risk. So we have to balance that risk with emerging evidence from clinical practice. And, the, and the, probably the, our national leader on this is Ann Calhoun. Um, who suggests that there's lower risks in prescribing low estrogen formulations, especially in patients who have a low vascular risk profile. So these are non-smokers, no heart disease, not diabe no diabetes, not overweight, no, no stroke, they have a no stroke risk. Um, and they understand that there may be slightly higher risk for their migraine with aura. That might be the patient that you would want to... to um, uh, discuss the use of estrogen with. So this is still fairly controversial, um, and the only medication that this consensus statement made a recommendation for was the use of progestin. Progestin is um, specifically desogestrel, which is not unfortunately used that commonly in the United States, but is available. Um, this is the only, only progestin that has been studied, and for migraine with aura, it seems to be the lowest risk. Um, does it work for migraine? Again, not a lot of good data to support that. So 
I think if I was a, well, we can talk a little bit about this in the Q&A and, and sort of troubleshoot that a little bit. But for now, those are the only, that's the only consensus statement we have. That's the only guideline that we have to help us make these decisions. All right, so what if you have your period ends and then you get the migraine? Is that due to the change in estrogen that occurred five to seven days prior? Likely not. And so there's a new category called um, end menses migraine. And um, the thought of this is that perhaps it's the not related to the hormonal change, but maybe the transient anemia that is due to blood loss from menstruation. And so end menses migraine may be one area where you want to look and look at the iron of your patient or um, play around with supplementing with iron during uh, after the period or during the period, try to build up the iron stores a little bit. That might be an easy um, treatment. Another Turkish study noted an increased prevalence of iron deficiency anemia in all migraine patients as compared to healthy controls, and a significant association between migraine and iron deficiency anemia in patients with menstrual migraine. So this is an area where I think there's a lot of room for more research, and I'm hopeful that um, somebody will, will take this on. So estrogen may be impacting menstrual migraine. Iron may be impacting menstrual migraine. Um, it may be due to fluctuations in estrogen. But the other thing that I want to look to dig in a little deeper to is how does estrogen impact pain? And I, I'm sure in this conference that there have been people that have talked about this before. But estrogen has been shown to impact this, the nervous system throughout. It's, it starts at the peripheral nerve, trigeminal ganglion, trigeminal nucleus, at the dura, the thalamus, the cortical system, the descending modular systems, all of those are full of estrogen receptors. And so um, it, is, it is quite difficult to parse out where exactly estrogen is working and what it's doing to contribute to the headache. Um, we also know that fluctuations in hormonal levels have been shown to influence sensitivity to thermal pain in healthy women. Um, there's been experimental muscle pain studies in women with dysmenorrhea, and it's also been shown to influence pain intensity, the feeling of unpleasantness, and, um, and functional uh, imaging studies have shown changes in the menstrual cycle with regard to noxious stimuli. So when, you're when you image your brain and you are given a noxious stimuli, your response will vary depending on where you are in your cycle, which is very interesting. So women respond to pain differently depending on the levels of estrogen that are in there circulating through their body uh, during the cycle. Maybe progesterone, maybe testosterone, there may be other hormones that are playing into this. Um, we don't know. Um, and there's also some very interesting evidence that the, there are changes in the brain across the menstrual cycle. So, um, I guess the easiest way to say this now is that you cannot get a neuroimaging study published on women unless you are able to note where every woman is in the menstrual cycle. Because when you end, you've, all, you've imaged every woman at the same time in their menstrual cycle. Because the ch brain, your brain volume changes in different brain regions fluctuate depending on where a woman is in her, in her cycle 
which is really interesting. So gray matter volume peaks were found during ovulation compared to luteal cycle phases. Gray matter and white matter fluctuations in brain regions related to emotion and cognition, change, so they change across the, the menstrual cycle. And women using hormonal, hormonal birth control have greater gray matter volumes in prefrontal cortices, pre and post central gyri, parahippocampus and fusiform gyri and temporal regions as compared to naturally cycling women. I can't tell you what impact that has on your pain experience or if that's even important or not, but it is very interesting to note that there are, the brain is in a dynamic change, state of flux, and it seems to be related to estrogen levels. It can also be related to, to medications that you are taking, um, but estrogen plays a big role in it. Um, and then just to complicate it even more, we see these downstream effects of estrogen that make the picture even more complicated. So for example, obese women appear to have a two-fold, more than two-fold risk of episodic and chronic migraine. And there are some people that speculate that adipose tissue produces estrogen. So you have this extra estrogen source, which is changing the estrogen levels in the body and may be contributing to, to migraine. And that may also, that there's an interest in exploring that during the perimenopausal time when women seem to gain weight. And so you have this kind of extra adipose tissue that may be causing changes in estrogen, uh, and, and that complicates the picture even more. Estrogen can also modulate serotonin neurotransmission um, and, uh, and um, uh, GABA as well. So it seems like there's, you have neurotransmitters being modulated by ebbs, by ebbs and flows of estrogen. Estrogen activates the endogenous opioid system. Um, so that can, that can have an analgesic effect. Um, and then conversely, the withdrawal from estrogen may um, inhibit or, or decrease the response of the endogenous opioid system. And furthermore, estrogen induces vascular changes by modulating vasodilation and, and suppressing vascular inflammatory responses. So depending on where you are in your cycle, you may have different um, different a different inflammatory response and perhaps a different immune response, which is an area that I didn't get into, but a very interesting area of research. Um, all right, so what, what can we do about it when a patient comes into our clinic? What are, we gonna, what are we gonna do with this patient who has menstrually related migraine, who's missing work four days a month because her migraines are so severe and it really correlates with her period? Well. First and foremost, um, I really want to re-emphasize or first emphasize the role of lifestyle on migraine. So everybody has to do their, every patient has to do their part. If you are stay, if you are not on a regular schedule, then it makes your migraines much harder to treat. Migraine brain is sort of like, it's, it's like all of our brains, although if we don't have migraine, we try to deny this or we don't have a health condition, we try to deny that we need schedule. But the role of schedule is very important for helping the brain run smoothly, you know, be as optimized as possible. So I tell my patients, you have to go to bed at the same time every night. You have to wake up at the same time every night. You have to eat regular meals. You have to take all that crap out of your food system. 
Um, no, you know, you cannot drink 17 cups of coffee a day. You cannot drink a gallon of Diet Pepsi a day. You have to take care of your body and you have to exercise. So those are the fundamentals. That helps me help, help you, yeah, let me help, you know, all right. So <laughs> they have to do that first and foremost. Um, and then we talk about, should we be looking at a preventive medication? Um, in general, prevention is warranted. So we start discussing preventive medications if you're having a headache more than four days a month. So in menstrual migraine, it could be that you're having a headache more than four days a month. Um, you could Sometimes you have an ovulatory headache and a menstrual headache. Sometimes you just have a very long menstrual headache. So you have to kind of discuss the pre prevention strategies with your patients. So there's a couple different strategies. If you're just having your your headache during your period, then I would recommend you start with perimenstrual use of NSAIDs. So if you're saying that you're going to get your period on Saturday, on Thursday you're going to start, or maybe Friday you're going to start taking the naproxen, and you're going to take naproxen Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 550 BID, and try to come up with a, you know, a quick and easy perimenstrual algorithm that you're going to use that starts a little bit before the day of the expected period. You could also do this with a triptan. So suma, there's a couple different regimens for menstrual migraine. Um, the ones that are FDA approved would be naratriptan or frovatriptan. And I usually say, some, they say you can start two days before the onset of your migraine, menstrual migraine, and continue for a total of three to five days. So I would say, even if you miss it, start as soon as you become aware that you're going to have your period. You know, as soon as you, as soon as you know, even if you miss that day, then you can take 25 TID or naratriptan, of sumatriptan, or naratriptan 1 milligram BID, or frovatriptan 2.5 milligrams BID. Um, and, and that, again, if their insurance will give them enough pills to cover that time can be very a very helpful strategy. The other strategy you can do for a mini prophylaxis is to take the medication they're already on. So let's say they're already on um, 10 milligrams of amitriptyline at bedtime to help them sleep. You could bump it up to 25 for those five to seven days or bump it up to 50 for those five to seven days that they're having their period and see if you can prophylax slash treat um, that way. So sometimes patients for migraine will already be on a medication, or maybe they're on Cymbalta for their back pain. Um, Cymbalta's not such a good idea, um, idea to go up and down, but Amitriptyline, Topamax, um, sometimes Depakote. If they're on those for, for other reasons, you can, you can play around with the increase that during their menstrual cycle. Cymbalta um, is not a good one to go up and down with I'm s because of the withdrawal side effects that are related to withdrawal syndrome that's related to Cymbalta that can be quite profound. Um, or your, your other option is to do a transdermal supplementation with estradiol gel, or if you can't get gel or a patient doesn't like gel, to do the patch during the week of menses. And again, try to, try to time it with the patient so that you're putting it on before they have their period. The patch, for example, it's a, usually um, the Vivel Dot is like a three-day patch, so you leave that on for three days and replace it. So that would give them about six 
days of continuous estrogen supplementation. So basically, just to hammer home why we're doing that, if the estrogen level is falling, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay low and slowly build back up. And when it's low, you're more vulnerable to getting migraines. Um, and so, and that may be due to your ability to, um, as we talked about, to uh, sense and experience nociception. It may be due to brain changes. It may be due to a variety of reasons that we're having, we, we still don't quite understand. But if we pop that estrogen level back up more rapidly, then it decreases then it decreases the amount of headaches and makes people less vulnerable to migraine um, over, those, over those days of their period. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and now let's say they, they miss their mini prophylaxis or their, their periods are too irregular for you to be able to predict when they're gonna have a period. Um, it seems like sometimes the menstrual migraines are a little bit um, maybe not as painful, but they, they are quite recalcitrant to breaking. So I usually say to hit them hard. Don't just give, if you're going to treat acutely, don't just give the 100 milligrams of sumatriptan. Throw on an NSAID, throw on an antiemetic, and allow the patient to be able to do that for several days so that they can get out of that cycle. Because sometimes it's very, it's a, it's just a lingering long headache that kind of sticks with them and can be particularly challenging to get through. All right, so let's leave menstrual migraine behind and let's move on to um, headache and pregnancy. So in headache and pregnancy, we see that in the first trimester, estrogen rises, and that is usually the worst a very nauseating, very uncomfortable time for women, a lot of headaches, this change in estrogen. So it's a rise, but it's still a change. The second and third trimester, women develop, their estrogen stabilizes, and a lot of women say they feel very good during their pregnancy and have um, the majority of women who have migraines have improved during pregnancy, during the second and third trimester. Um, but it is important that we really pay attention to these women with severe maternal migraines because there's been a couple interesting studies out recently that um, show adverse delivery outcomes in women seeking treatment for acute migraines. So increased risk of um, um, placental abruption, increased risk of preeclampsia, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so this subpopulation that has severe, the migraines are ticking up in their second and third trimester is a population that you really want to maybe work with the OB or seek extra treatments to try to help get the patient's pain under better control. Um, it's also important to just always review your red flags. And I don't, in, in neurology, we go over this a lot, but in the pain world, we, prob, we don't really talk so much about red flags and headaches. So if a patient's coming to you with a brand new headache or a headache, you just want to clarify, is this like your typical migraine? And most patients will know, yeah, this is my typical migraine. It's worse or it's more frequent, but oftentimes they'll say, this is different. This is a very different headache than I'm used to. So in, in the headache world, we look for changes, sudden onset of a new headache reaching maximal intensity very quickly a new onset of a severe headache or a significant change in your headaches, a worsening headache with fever or meningismus, 
a headache triggered by a cough, valsalva, sneezing, or exercise, orthostatic headache, also suggestive of changes in intracranial pressure, um, new onset of different focologic neuro, focal neurologic deficits, recent trauma, um, headache with impaired conscious or consciousness or personality changes, a headache with an unusual aura. So migraine patients, even if they even um, if they say they don't have aura, many migraineurs will have had maybe some experience with aura, very rarely. Um, but if they say they've never had aura before, if they say like this aura is extremely different than any aura I've ever had, that's something you want to pay attention to. Um, a progressive, steadily worsening headache, headache with a visual disturbance or visual field defect, and symptoms suggestive of giant cell arteritis or glaucoma, so a lot of eye pain, a lot of temporal tenderness, jaw tenderness. Um, these are obviously things that you don't want to overlook, so we're just, I'm just mentioning them here to uh, keep them in your mind. Um, there's a lot of secondary causes for headache in pregnancy. So it's not always migraine, but if the patient had that a different type of headache, you would send them to get imaging, is what you would do, an MRI, which is safe to do in pregnancy. Um, and you would be thinking about some of these secondary causes <clears throat> of headaches in pregnancy. Just to pop them up on the screen here. Um, And I'm happy to talk more in depth about any of these other, other causes. Um, but there's a lot. So I think the, the strategy is to really talk to your patient and, and key in with them. Is this the same type of headache that you're familiar with, or are we dealing with something new and different? For women who are having migraines during their pregnancy, you've ruled out bad stuff. It's just for some reason they are, their headaches are not doing well during pregnancy. You want to strategize with them. You really want to hydrate them. They need to drink a minimum of two liters per day. <clears throat> if they're very nauseous, they can really get behind on their fluid intake. So treating effectively with nausea medication, just... Um, Zofran is okay. Phenergan, Compazine, and Reglan are better for migraine-related headaches. So you can discuss with your OB if they feel okay with that. Usually when you get to the point where you're um, losing weight because you're vomiting so frequently and you can't keep anything down, you're it's hard to keep hydrated, they're okay with whatever antiemetic you want to give the patient. Um, reducing your caffeine intake kind of slowly and steadily. Working on sleep hygiene, this is really hard if they have a small child at home already, and, um, <clears throat> but it, ha it, it has to be something you think about. Trying to get some exercise um, and trying to use some behavioral medicine strategies. Again, not to, not to cure them, but to help them calm down some of the um, fear and catastrophizing and um, uh, depression that can set in when you're having such frequent headaches. There are some interesting medication strategies out there. So, there, in 2018, there was a randomized controlled trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine that compared low-dose aspirin to placebo for pregnant women with migraine. And it was a little controversial because of this kind of fear of NSAIDs. They used it throughout the pregnancy. Um, but it did not show any worse outcomes during pregnancy for, uh, and, post, and, and in the children that were born. So... Um, it seemed like 
aspirin 75 milligrams once a day would be an okay NSAID, so low dose aspirin, to consider using for migraine prophylaxis. Beta blockers um, are also okay for, for prophylaxis. I use a low dose, 10 to 40 milligrams three times a day. Um, I've never gotten up to 40 milligrams three times a day in a pregnant woman, but usually I can get 10 or 20 because their, their blood pressure is already low to begin with. Um, verapamil, there's less evidence, but it, can, it um, is acceptable. And there is um, good evidence, well, there's, there is some evidence for use in cluster and pregnancy, just something you don't see very frequently. Um, Low-dose tricyclics can also be considered at nighttime. The medications to avoid would be Topamax and Depakote or valproic acid, and that's because of their, especially valproic acid, the high risk of teratogenicity in the fetus. Um, so again, first-line analgesia might be Tylenol, avoid opiates, avoid large doses of NSAIDs, um, antiemetics, as we've talked about, uh, all of them, but I, I prefer um, prochloroperazine, pro, pro so phenergan, compazine, those, those antiemetics. Um, Greater occipital nerve blocks are great for pregnant women. They are super helpful in my experience, although there's never been a study. It would be really nice to have a study. Um, but they could come in every week and have just a quick, even a blind block back here. It can be very, very helpful to decrease. No steroid, we don't usually need steroid, um, but just uh, put in a little bit of long-acting ropey or bupy and it can really help. Um, and then, for severe intractable migraine, um, we do consider uh, triptans. So it, the thought is that these are controversial because of the vasoconstrictive properties of triptans, but um, actually has been used, and there have been some small studies, and it seems like there are um, okay outcomes. So there's cautious use, no, no, no bad outcomes, so no um, spontaneous abortions uh, that have happened. We try to say probably be best to use in the third trimester um, and to maybe start with the lower dose and see how the patient does. And again, try to use it as sparingly as possible, uh, but it is, it is uh, used um, and probably will become more used as opiates are, are falling more and more out of favor. And then avoid ergotamines in pregnancy. Ergotamines are a very messy drug DHE has, has a lot of um, downstream side effects, so we just don't use it in, in pregnancy, venoconstriction and arterial constriction um, being the first and foremost. Okay, so let's say you go, have your, you get through pregnancy, and now you're postpartum, um, and during breastfeeding, so your estrogen your estrogen levels are still um, a little bit bobbing, bobbing up and down. But breastfeeding seems to be protective for migraine. And the thought is that it's due to the oxytocin you're releasing during breastfeeding. So oxytocin is a very powerful chemical. It um, causes you to think that your child is the most beautiful thing on the planet um, and that you would do anything for that, for that little child, which is... Uh, evolutionarily necessary for the survival of our species. Um, 
but it also keeps you feeling good so that you can get through this very tumultuous time of no sleep, no eating, little exercise, um, things that would set off migraines very rapidly. So I really encourage my migraine patients to try to breastfeed and to try to get that oxytocin going. Um, and then their estrogen sort of slowly comes back online and usually by the time they're breastfeeding, their migraines are back to kind of their normal rhythm and their normal routine. Now let's say they get a migraine during their, pregnant, during their breastfeeding uh, time and they wanna know if they can um, take a triptan. And then we get into this whole realm of pumping and dumping. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this term, right? So that patients come in and they want to know, like, when do I take the trip down? How many times do I have to pump and dump? And then can I, can I, can I nurse my baby? Um, and the literature for this is, is changing. It kind of is always being updated. So I would go, I'm referring you to this resource. It's called Lactmed. You type in sumatriptan, rizotriptan, whatever triptan your patient is taking, and it will give you kind of the most up-to-date advice on um, how to advise the patient. But essentially, the important thing to keep in your mind is that the shorter-acting triptans are in and out of your system in about two hours. So sumatriptan, rizotriptan, um, elatriptan, uh, zolmatriptan, they are all are in and out in two hours versus frovatriptan and narotriptan that linger in your body for a much longer period of time. Narotriptan is six hour half-life, frova is like 18 to 24 hour half-life. So I would say you start with a shorter acting triptan, you have your patient take it, then two hours later they do a pump and a dump and then they can go ahead and nurse freely after that. So that's my general recommendation. Some women want to be more cautious um, but I kind of I kind of go with that basic outline and then try to update myself. Um, okay, and the last area that I wanted to talk about is migraines and menopause. So this is an area that does not have enough research and really really needs more research. Women enter menopause in their mid forties um, or earlier. However, they don't reach menopause till the age of like 55 or sometimes later. So we have this like 10 year period where a woman is in perimenopausal or in menopause. Now perimenopausal basically means that your hormones are unpredictable and erratic. Well, that's just terrible for migraine patients. Um, they, it throws off their plan, their menstrual migraine plan because they don't know when their period is coming and they have they start to notice headaches at different times of the month than they previously had them. And so perimenopausal women can really get into a lot of trouble with headaches and it is a very challenging um, population to treat. So HRT can be considered, but it's, again, not a lot of research. It can, it can worsen migraines. Although in general, if a patient is up for trying it, I will try to supplement with some low dose estrogen to try to smooth things out if we really feel that this is the culprit. Other medications to try would be gabapentin, venlafaxine. There's a variety of natural supplements, although I'm not going to go over them today because natural supplements are, are not regulated and it's hard to predict what you're actually getting. Um, but uh, I think that I'm hopeful that in the future there's going to be more research on this 
this challenging time in life because um, there's a lot of hormonal shifts that are happening, coupling with a metabolism that's changing, and it's a very difficult setup uh, for a lot of women. The other thing that's really important is to get women back into proper lifestyle at this time. Sometimes their sleep gets disrupted, their exercise gets disrupted, depression can set in. So it's really important to optimize their, to go back to the basics and, and look at their lifestyle and optimize at this point in time as well. Okay, so in summary, estrogen modulates migraine over the female life cycle. We have a lot of ideas about how it does that, although we don't exactly know yet. Um, there's many different types of headaches that women can have related to estrogen, menstrually related migraine, estrogen withdrawal headache, or exogenous estrogen-induced headache. The migraines can change in pregnancy due to changes in your estrogen levels. Migraines can change in breastfeeding due to changes in estrogen levels. And migraines will change during perimenopause and menopause due to fluctuating estrogen levels. But once you're through menopause, good news migraines should settle down. Um, estrogen modulates both our peripheral nervous system and our central nervous system. It impacts um, our, our nociceptors, so our perception of pain, and it impacts our central nervous system and our ability to modulate pain. And treatment starts at understanding a proper diagnosis and, and not being afraid to use estrogen, but just understanding uh, the role of, of exogenous estrogen in the, in the treatment algorithm. And thank you. That's all I have. Do we do questions? Is that, yeah? Yes. So when do you start it as a, yeah. Aspirin is now used routinely as prevention for preeclampsia in pregnant patients, so it's, it's considered to be safe and even uh, helpful. And so that's I, starting in the? Uh, I, I, don't, I yeah. believe the starting, the, it's, it's recommended to start in the second trimester, some, yeah. sometime in the second trimester. Usually what we're, you know, we tell a patient like, let's see if we can get you past the first trimester and then things will be better. And then if they're not better, we start thinking, okay, we're gonna have to add on the propranolol and, and the aspirin and other preventive medi medications for their migraine. Thank you. I think there's a person right behind you. Hi, did you say that estrogen indirectly decreased serotonin amounts via the transporter? It modulates it in very complex ways. So it can act at the, at the nerve ending where, where serotonin is released, right. and it can also act in the brain itself. So it's really complicated. I don't want to say that it increases or decreases, but it has a modulatory effect that is not fully understood yet. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other quick question I had about the pathological estrogen production and obesity. Yeah. What, what was that again? The so adipose tissue produces estrogen. Right. So let's say normally you have estrogen that is just coming from your, your normal mm -hmm. system, you know, your normal pituitary to the ovarian system. But um, then you have this sort of extra 
adipose tissue that throws some more estrogen in the mix, and the level of how the level of how that co comes out of the adipose tissue and enters systemic circulation is variable and can interact with your already in the endogenous estrogen your body's already making. So it leads to it can lead to some changes in your overall estrogen level. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I have one. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that oxytocin seems to be very effective at treating migraines. Yeah. Does any, anybody ever use oxytocin yes. therapeutically? Yes. There so, is a, a company of Stanford professors tried in phase three clinical trials with an intranasal oxytocin um, for migraine. But in my anecdotal experience, it doesn't seem to be good as a rescue. So I don't know what the I don't know what they're gonna use it like how they're gonna use it if it'd be better as a pre preventive. Yeah. Um, we'll see. Right. Dave you. Yeomans is uh, is working on that at Stanford. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm pretty loud. Hello, great talk by the way. Uh, great overview. So, do you have any? Um, experiences with preventives, monoclonal antibodies yeah. for prevention of mi migraine, and, uh, and if you can clarify that all what you said can be applied also on tension-type headaches, or you've been talking only about uh, menstrual migraine and menstrual-related re migraines, because it's a yeah. pretty different pathophysiology. It is a different pathophysiology. So I would say that... Um, we know that during dysmenorrhea, during, during your period, fibro acts up, temporal mandibular dysfunction acts up. Um, I don't know if there's been any studies on chronic lower back pain, but I wouldn't be surprised if that flared in females during their period. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if during your period your tension headache could act up, but it would be working at a more of a nociceptive level um, what I didn't get into is the way that we think estrogen may also modulate cortical spreading depression <laughs> for migraine and the way that we think estrogen may modulate um, uh, mast cell degranulation uh, within the dura. And so there's some other areas that we think estrogen may work on with migraine, which makes those two so tightly correlated. But in general, when they do all studies of men versus women um, and pain studies, it does seem that women during their period, it's a more special time of the month. So I would say all pain treatments are impacted, all pain conditions are impacted by changes in estrogen. Can you apply all of migraine treatments that we talked about, like the hormonal ma manipulation to other pain conditions? I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen any research on it, but Certainly you have a, a subset in your clinic that you can ask about this, right? There's plenty of women that have fibro that are already on hormones for other reasons, and you could survey them. What happened when you prior, how did your pain change prior to starting on um, oral, contraceptive, oral contraception? And it would be interesting to see. I've never seen any studies on it. Is that your question or was there another part to it? And monoclonals. So the indication for monoclonals is um, episodic and chronic migraine. Um, they have not gone any deeper. Now, 
I think we could say that, that monoclonal antibodies target neuroinflammation, which is kind of the downstream process that happens with, menst happens with any migraine. So regardless of the cause, I think monoclonal antibodies could be helpful for all types of migraine, um, but I haven't specifically used it for this population of menstrually related migraine yet. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate